Bibles to Acts 2, 22 through 24, and then following that we'll be reading from 32 through 36. In your pew Bible, it's found on page 771. Acts 2, starting with Acts 2, 22, reading through 24. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's self-purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then going to 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he has directed from the faith, from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not descend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Bible. People have put the words the Bible together and say it stands for biblical instructions before life eternal. Thank you, Nick. In 1983, John Scully quit his job at PepsiCo Company, known for its soda products, to become the president of Apple Computer. At the time, it was a huge risk as he would leave a secure job with a well-established firm to join ranks with an unknown and unproven company. He had no guarantees in making this move, but a compelling vision moved him to accept this unknown position. Scully says he made the risky move after Apple co-founder baited him with this question. He asked him, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? Jesus' first disciples were given a charge to change the world. Sure, they could have given themselves to lots of things. But it was a compelling vision given by the compelling Christ. As we saw last week in our study in the book of Acts, as we started this new series in the book of Acts, the disciples were to be witnesses to Jesus Christ, and they were not to be that in their own power and strength, but only by the empowering presence of the Almighty God who would take up residence in their lives. It is only as our lives and ministries are operating in His power 
that there's a sense of vibrancy in our walk with the Lord. To go at it without his power is to experience lifelessness and sheer exhaustion. As we start this new series in the book of Acts, as we started last week, we're using the imagery of markers on a hiking trail that assure us that we're on the right path. Our destination on this path is vibrancy. Would you describe your life, your walk with God as vibrant, lively? Well, what are the marks on the path of vibrancy? Well, we saw the first marker last week, God's empowering presence. We look to identify the second mark this morning. Now, I want to take us back for a moment to the passage last week in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So look back there with me. Have your Bibles open. Go back to chapter 1 of the book of Acts, verse 9. Acts 1, verse 9. After he, Jesus, said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, it says there, the cloud hid Jesus from their eyes. It was the cloud in the Old Testament that symbolized God's glory and presence. The disciples wouldn't have missed it. Jesus ascended into heaven on the glory cloud that signified the presence of God. Jesus headed home to enjoy the glory that was his before he set it aside in order to suffer for our sake. He would once delight in the Father's presence and enjoy all the pleasures in God's right hand. He would now experience the joy that was set before him, the joy he lived his life for. Home at last. Now put yourselves, however, in the sandals of the disciples for a moment. While they were assured that they would see Jesus again, they are left looking at an empty sky, dumbfounded for their friend, their master, their savior, disappeared, vanished. They're left asking, why do you have to leave? Jesus left them. It's hard to let go, isn't it? These disciples had staked their lives on his presence. I mean, wouldn't it be better if he stayed? He could answer all their questions. They could show him off to the skeptics. He could solve their squabbles instantly. But Jesus had said that it would be better if he left. How so? What was on the heels of Jesus That the Holy Spirit would indwell them and they could be linked to God 24-7. It is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you, brothers and sisters in Christ. And while we have had to let go of a dear sister in Christ, we are promised His continual presence to walk with us through the valley of loss and pain and sadness. He is there 24-7. He'll never leave us. And when we cry out, Where is God when it hurts? The answer is twofold. 
On the hills of Jesus, first of all, he has given us the presence of the Holy Spirit to minister, minister to us in our hurt. But secondly, the answer to that question, where is God when it hurts? The answer to that, secondly, is he's given us the church. It was on the heels of Jesus that the church was born. On the heels of Jesus comes the church. The church was God's way of keeping his presence in the world. So legitimately, we can ask, where is the church when it hurts? It was on the heels of Jesus that he left his reputation, the keys of his kingdom, to some, in some fumbling hands. It's now up to them. It's on the heels of Jesus that they would be his witnesses in the world. They were to resemble Christ. They were to be Christ to the world. It was on the heels of Jesus that a handful of men changed their world. And that brings us to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The scene here is a gathering of Jews for the annual celebration of the wheat harvest and remembrance of the giving of the law. That's what's going on. That's the scene. That's what brought them there. And something happened... In Acts chapter 2, like never before, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they speak in languages unknown to them, but known to the hearers who had come from many different dialects. And it's in that context, when, when others were saying, oh, you guys must be drunk here, what's going on? It's in that context that Peter steps up and he explains the phenomenon using the prophecy of Joel to show that this was a God thing. And Peter then delivers a stirring, not so politically correct message. I mean, this is quite a message that Peter delivers here that, that, that uh, was just read that we're going to read through this morning. It's quite a message. Peter delivers the main thing here. He gets it right. Now, I want to let you in on something about me. When, when my wife asks me to pick up something at the grocery store for her, I go into a panic. <laughs> now, I go into a panic because I'm afraid I'm not going to get it right. I don't think I'm going to get it right. I'm a member of the Clueless Husband Shopping Squad. That's me. Hi, my name's Brian. I am a part of the Clueless Husband Shopping Squads. Now, I can relate to the guy who came home from the grocery store with one carton of eggs and two sacks of flour and three boxes of cake mix and four sacks of sugar and five cans of cake frosting. And his wife looked at the sacks of groceries and laments, I knew I never should have numbered the list. <laughs> See what happened? You feel that way? Now, perhaps you're like Max Lucado who shared that he was asked to pick up bread. And while he was there, he picked up this and that and the other thing. And he came back with a bag of groceries. And the wife asked, where's the bread? <laughs> the one thing I asked you to get. The one essential item, and he forgot it. See, in all that we do as a church, we can never forget the bread. We can never forget the main thing. Peter didn't. Peter got it right. He doesn't forget the most essential item, the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. And when we're shopping and doing all of this and picking up all these things, let's not forget the main thing, the essential thing, the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about this morning. 
And you know, I, I wondered after what we've gone through this week, maybe I should go in another direction. No, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. God was saying to me, no, keep Jesus central. Exalt him. Look at these verses here, verse 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2. Peter says, men of Israel, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now I almost began my sermon this morning by saying... You killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what kind of reaction would I have gotten? I don't know. Chickened out on that one. But Peter, when talking to a crowd of people, a group that numbered over 3,000 people, he told them, you crucified Jesus. What do you suppose their first reaction would be when Peter told them they killed Jesus? And to make matters worse... Some of them there are religious people that Peter's talking to. They're moral people. They're worshiping people. They're people who might have even known hundreds of of verses by heart. Now, was he suggesting that they all had a part in the actual nailing of Christ on the cross? Was he even suggesting that they were all part of the crowd who yelled, crucify him, crucify him? Well, the point Peter seems to be making is that there's a contrast, and I want us to get this, there's a contrast between how they treated Jesus and how God the Father treats Jesus. The question on the table this morning is this. How do you treat Jesus? How do you treat Jesus? Does it agree with what God says about him, that he's the main thing? John Piper speaks of this passage here in Acts 2 of, as God's endorsement of Jesus. You see, who he is and why who he is matters. When we keep who he is before us at all times, it will help us think his thoughts and reveal his character. Well, what does God say about Jesus in this passage here? Well, at least four things, and I want to bring them out. First of all, God says about Jesus that Jesus' death was a divine necessity. That Jesus' death was a divine necessity. You see, Jesus' death did not happen by chance. It wasn't because Jesus was overtaken by the acts of sinful men. It was determined by God. Verse 23 says that it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge that Jesus was manhandled. We are told that Jesus' suffering and ultimate death on the cross was foreordained and predetermined by God. It was a divine necessity. Why? Because only a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the holiness of God and pay the penalty of our sins. But we mustn't miss the role of human will here. The rest of the verse in verse 23 says, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, God holds them responsible for their part in the act itself. They claim, may claim to know God and worship God, but if they do not agree with what God says about Jesus, they are anti-Gods. You can say you're fearful of God all you want, and you're a God-fearing person. But if you do not agree with God and what he says about Jesus, you are anti-God. You are. There's no gray there. 
Now, I don't believe there's a clearer verse of the coming together of what's often viewed as, as opposing ideas, the set purposes of God and human freedom. This passage right here brings them both together in a beautiful way. What happened was a divine necessity, the salvation of our souls. But it happened through human instruments who exercised their own human freedom. What we have here in this passage and of the crucifixion of Christ is the highest example of what they intended for evil, God's set purpose was for good. Now, do you need to hear that this morning? The person who's hurt you can be of God to glorify Christ in you and through you. That evil intention can be of God to work out His purposes in you and through you. That loss, that heartache... That hard-to-understand incident can be of God to carry out His desires in you and through you. You see, human plans are always in submission to God's plans. Always. And the difference here between their plan to crucify Jesus and God's plan to hand Him over to death was that they were rejecting Jesus and His claims and God was honoring Him as the servant of God and the Savior of the world. How does God treat Jesus as the Savior of the world? As the one who had to suffer and die for the forgiveness of your sins. And if we add works to the gospel, if we walk around and we live in a perpetual state of guilt, we are saying that Jesus' death is not good enough. We are disagreeing with what God says about Jesus and the necessity and sufficiency of his death. So you have to wrestle with, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, for the Savior to be your Savior of your sins? Do you need to do that and settle that once and for all? Or maybe you've done that. Maybe you've received the offer of forgiveness, yet you continue to beat yourself up over some past sin or or some past failure. God says, how are you treating Jesus? His sacrifice was sufficient. It covered it all. God treats him as the savior of the world. Are you with God in this? That's one endorsement. It was a divine necessity. Second, what God says about Jesus here, second endorsement of Jesus by God is that Jesus cannot be nailed down. (laughs) Jesus cannot be nailed down. Look at verse 24. Chapter 2. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Look down at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the facts. God says that he raised this Jesus from the dead. The resurrection changes our lives because we now, all who know that, we live in victory. And we've had, we've had a lot of deaths here over the last month and a half. Vera lives because Jesus lives. Gordon lives because Jesus lives. Ruth lives because Jesus lives. Kathy lives because Jesus cannot be nailed down. He cannot. And that fact is not only for us when we die, but because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have the power of the resurrection to live every single moment of every day for him. That power is available now. How does God treat Jesus as the one who has risen from the dead. It's been said that the resurrection means we can never nail him down, not even if the nails we use are real and the thing we nail him to is a cross. 
can't nail them down. You know, that means we can't put Jesus into some man-made box that we like to do and keep them there, reduce them, keep, them, keep us comfortable. That means, because Jesus can't be nailed down, that means we never know where Jesus just might show up. He can't be nailed down. Are you trying to nail him down? Are you trying to nail him down by suggesting that he must always act in a certain way? Are your eyes open to seeing Christ's presence in the world around you? He wants to show up in your life every day. He wants to go with you to work. He wants to go with you to the gym. He wants to go with you to school. He wants to go with you everywhere you go. He can't be nailed down. He wants to show up in your marriage. Is he invited? He wants to show up in your plans and goals. Will you let him in? How do you treat Jesus as the living Christ? Do you live in the power of his resurrection? That would suggest, if we're going to live in the power of his resurrection, that may suggest that we have to die to some things in order to experience that. What do we need to die to? Jesus cannot be nailed down, and when he, what he does may not always fit what we think he should or should not do. What does God say about Jesus? It's divine necessity. He can't be nailed down. Thirdly, what God says about Jesus, that Jesus is superior to everything and everyone. Jesus is superior to everything and everyone. It was Augustine who said, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he's valued above all. The ascension of Jesus symbolized that he's above all of us and above all of creation. All of creation is under his feet. Look at verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God where he is interceding for us. A boy was visiting his grandmother And she brought him to the park, and she invites her grandson to look around. And and she says to her grandson, isn't this place beautiful? Look at the flowers and the birds singing in the trees. Look at that spectacular rainbow in the sky. God made all of this. And the grandson says, yes, and he did it with his left hand. (laughs) Grandma was a little confused, so she asked him, what makes you think God did this with his left hand? And the grandson said, well, he had to have done it with his left hand. We learned in Sunday school that Jesus was sitting on his right hand. <laughs> well, he almost had it right. Almost. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's enjoying all the pleasures of God. He speaks to us from the right hand of God, inviting us to join with him for all of eternity and bring along as many people as possible to that same place. He's given the place of rule and supremacy over every other person in power in the universe because Jesus is the exalted one. What difference does it make? What difference does it make that Jesus is exalted? The great Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, put it this way. He said, when Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of the Father, when he sees the great galaxies whirling in space, when he sees the planets and the people upon this planet, 
when he sees all the minute details of life here, including the details of our individual lives, there is nothing that he sees anywhere of which he cannot say, mine, mine, all of it belongs to him. Jesus is given the place of preeminence. He's the exalted one which means he is the head of the church. He is the main thing. In Colossians 1, it says of Jesus, for by him all things were created, all things were created by him and for him. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Ephesians 1 similarly puts it, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. It begs the question again, how do we treat Jesus? Do we treat Jesus as the head of this church? To answer that, it might be helpful to ask, how do we treat the body of Christ, one another in the church? Because how we treat each other answers the question as to how we treat Jesus. Are we being careful how we treat God's possession? The church is valuable and precious. Let's do all we can to handle it with gentleness and care. More on that next week. We come to the climax of Peter's sermon, verse 36. And I hope we at least get this this morning. Verse 36 of Acts 2 says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. We must treat Jesus as the sovereign that he is. We must treat Jesus as the sovereign that he is. He is not our servant. We are his. God's goal in our lives is not happiness. It's lordship. He wants to rule in our lives. That means he wants to be Lord of your business. He wants to be Lord of your career. He wants to be Lord of your marriage. He wants to be Lord of your relationships. He wants to be Lord of your leisure. He wants to be Lord of your checkbook. Now a meddling. (laughs) He wants to be Lord of all of it. Is he absolute Lord of your life? I mean, is there anything more difficult than to transfer authority from ourselves to him? I give it to him and I take it back. Is there any area in my life presently which I'm unwilling to submit to his authority? A place where he said, Lord, you can have all of this, just don't touch this. Lord, you can have this key to this room. Lord, you can have this key over here. You can have this key to the wrist room in my heart. You can have this key and this key and this key, but not this key. You cannot have this key. Is there a key and a room and one room of our heart, our life, that is kept for personal use and the Lord is shut out of that room? F.B. Meyer, a Baptist minister in the heart of London in the 19th century, speaks of a time in his life where in the midst of a successful ministry, he confessed that something was lacking in his vibrancy in the Lord. He said this, He said, my early Christian life was marred and my ministry paralyzed because I had kept back one thing from the bunch of keys that I had given to the Lord. Just one. 
I kept back the key to one room in my life, and it brought me great defeat. It wasn't until I experienced the Lordship of Christ by handing over to Him the last key. Only then did joy and vibrancy begin. I ask you as I've asked myself, have you yielded keys to every room in your life? Does the Lord have the key to every room in your private life? Is there a room marked private keep out? Will you surrender that key to the Lord? What's holding you back? Jesus sits on the throne and he is Lord. Do we treat him that way? Shortly after joining the Navy, the new recruit asked his officer for a pass so he could attend a wedding. This new recruit went to the officer and the officer gave him the pass but but informed this new recruit, this young man, that he would have to be back by 7 o'clock that night. You don't understand, sir, said the new recruit. I'm in the wedding. No, you don't understand. The officer shot back, you're in the Navy. All who know Christ now belong to him and his kingdom. As his subjects, we are to submit to him and obey him as he directs our lives. How do you treat Jesus? Do you treat him as the sovereign Lord that he is? Do you treat him as the exalted one? We've reached the second marker on the path to vibrancy. It's Christ-exalted living in ministry. It's Christ-exalted living in ministry. Christ must be central to all that we do. What is at stake in Peter's sermon is whether or not they are with or against God. Do we agree and join with God in his assessment of how he treats Jesus? What difference does it make that Jesus is exalted? What should that look like in our lives? Well, it means we put Christ in his rightful place at the center of all we do. Christ is to be the all-consuming center point of our existence and not simply an add-on to everything else we do. And as the sun is to our solar system, so the Son of God should be to our existence. Our lives should revolve around the Son of God, and when it does, we find light and life and meaning and vibrancy. When he's not at the center... We walk in darkness and experience death-like symptoms. See, this means if Christ is the exalted one, he is central to all that we do, it means that the ministry we are involved in is Christ's ministry and not my ministry. We better hold on to it loosely. I'm speaking to myself. This means that our desire is to do things his way and not my own way. And all that we do in this church, we should ask, does it point to Christ or does it point to me? Is he exalted in our ministries? Is he exalted in our worship? Is he at the center of all that we do? Because when he's at the center of all that we do, it is the very heartbeat of vibrant faith that makes a real and lasting impact in the world. It is then that we answer the call to change our world rather than give our lives to that which amounts to nothing more than sugared water. The more we keep him at the center of our lives, the more of him we reflect. It is up to us to be Christ to the world. On the heels of Jesus, we are to resemble him. Annie Dillard observes, what a pity that so hard on the heels of Christ come the Christians. Ouch. 
Why is it at times we so poorly resemble him? Well, if we're going to reverse that, it begins by treating him as the sovereign that he is. This Christ-exalted living and ministry that moves us toward our destination of vibrancy as a church and, and, and individuals. How do you treat Jesus? Are you attempting to bring him down to a place where you can remain comfortable, reduce him a little bit? Can't really do it, but in our minds we think we can. Or will we look up to him as the exalted one? How do you see Jesus? How do you treat him? Years ago, a famous sculpture was commissioned to create a statue of Christ for a large church. And bringing all his skill to bear, he crafted an image of Jesus that had people waiting in line for blocks to view it when it was finally unveiled. Everyone raved about this masterpiece. Everyone except one local art critic. This local art critic went to the church midweek to view the statue when no one else was around, and he found it nothing to be out of the ordinary. The statue stood at the front of the church, and from his vantage point, halfway back in the sanctuary, it looked average at best. And that's just what he was going to write in his column the next day. Just then, a janitor walked into the sanctuary and saw the the critic scribbling notes. And he asked him, would you like to see the statue from the vantage point it was designed to be viewed from? And then he took the critic up in front of the now imposing statue. And he had him get on his knees before this masterpiece and look up. Needless to say, what he then wrote in the story was totally different than what he was just prepared to write minutes earlier. As he stood, as he was on his knees before this masterpiece and looked up. Will you bow before Christ as a leader of your life? Will you? Will you bow before Christ as a leader of your life? He's saying, all this, Lord, you can have all of these keys, but not this one. I will not submit to you with this key. Will you give him the key? Will you submit to him? Whatever that is, will you give it to him? Is today the day you give it to him? He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you sing that with me? And you know what? We'll sing it a cappella here. We'll do this. You know what? Know something we never do in a Protestant church? This. And you may not be able to this morning, but maybe it's your heart's desire to say, you know what, I've given everything, but I haven't given this one thing this morning. I want to do that, and I want to declare that he is Lord of that area of my life, and I'm going to go on my knees this morning. You may not be able to physically. You may say, I don't even need to because it's in my heart. That's fine. No pressure. Absolutely none. You can do this if you want to, and if you want to give it to the Lord this morning. And sing with me, he is Lord. He is Lord, He is Lord.